0: On this episode of the Lemon Lyceum, we talk with Dr. David Hall about Presbyterianism. This is part of a new series that we're doing on different faith traditions, learning directly from those within them. And we hope to promote a strong spirit of charity and curiosity with each of these interviews that leads us to a better understanding. So we cover topics like what is Presbyterianism? How would you define it? What are the core tenets? How is Presbyterianism both connected to the great tradition and different from it? What are the areas that are unique? and what makes Presbyterianism so special to Dr. Hall, as well as what areas of Presbyterianism might be more susceptible to critique or the areas that we receive the most questions about, and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this is what's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And in thinking, we want to think well. So we've singled out a couple of virtues that we try to, to promote and practice, and those are charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Uh, we try to display those and promote those and encourage those on all of our episodes as well as our online presence. We're not always perfect at it. But one of the things that we wanted to do in this particular podcast episode and series that we've been doing on different denominations and faith traditions within the the historic Christian faith is practice a little bit of curiosity. So we want to be curious and hear from those who are in those other traditions. Tell me more about it. I want to understand why it is that... um, a Eastern Orthodox has all sorts of images in their church. Ex- explain that to me. Instead of me reading somebody's critique of it, I want to hear from an actual Eastern Orthodox person. Why is it that you think that? And today I'm really looking forward to introducing you all to Dr. David Hall uh, to talk about Presbyterianism. So I think personally for me, if I were to ever be another you know, denomination or something, I'd be a Presbyterian. So this is I mean, I think the the least antagonistic I I would possibly be just because I'm I'm very similar. And may I commend also the the Reformation Worship Conference that David does at his church. Uh, I think it's annually. I can't remember if you did it during COVID or not, but. I'll tell everybody, if you're not familiar with it, you need to go to this this conference. I think it's fabulous. It's fantastic. It's enriching. It's encouraging. It's all the good things that you want. I mean, you've got dinner set up every evening to where you can actually hang out and meet people and talk to them and learn from them. So I think it's it's just a wonderful conference. So I'm really looking forward to, to picking his brain on some of this stuff. Now, bef- before we do any of that, Dr. Hall, can you give me just a little bit of a bio about yourself for our listeners who aren't familiar with you. And then tell me, how did you become a Presbyterian? Was this something you were born as, or did, did you convert later on? I mean, conversion's a big word for that. I don't, most people say when you convert, I like guess it's to Rome or to to Eastern Orthodoxy and not necessarily to, to another Protestant denomination, but you get the idea.
1: Sure. Thanks, Jordan. And thanks for the plug for our conference. We didn't, we, we actually missed it two years. We didn't have it this past fall because of COVID, and the speakers we line up, we have to have about a two-year lead time uh, to get them, but uh, we hope to be back. Uh, I'm the pastor, senior pastor of Midway Presbyterian Church in uh, the township of Powder Springs, Georgia, which is suburban Atlanta, northwest, finishing up almost 19 years here. Prior to that, I pastored in a small town in East Tennessee uh, in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and uh, I do not have any Presbyterian heritage whatsoever, neither my wife nor I have any Presbyterian heritage at all. Her people were uh, Irish, Catholic, uh, pre-Vatican II, <clears throat> Latin mass people. She went to parochial schools and, and became a Christian when she was 20. Uh, I became a Christian when I was 17, but I grew up in the Methodist church. So uh, I tell people, particularly students, when I talk to them, that there were two things I never wanted to be in life. One was a pastor and secondly, a Presbyterian. And uh, now in the providence of God, uh, I am both of those. So, uh, I am a Presbyterian uh, because of uh, what I think is honest biblical study, New Testament exegesis, uh, primarily seeing the offices of of bishop and elder as being the same office uh, with the other New Testament office of deacons. And uh, uh, I, I, like I said, I don't have that heritage. <clears throat> Uh, I didn't have to be a Presbyterian pastor. That's where I end up. And I guess I'm like you, Jordan. If, if I weren't going to be a Presbyterian, I'd like to be you when I grow <laughs> up and be a Baptist. Uh, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, big Adrian Rogers country. Uh, in fact, so much so that my public high school had our commencement at Bellevue Baptist in 1973. Wow. So in Memphis, everybody's a Baptist. Even the Methodists are Baptists. Catholics are almost Baptists. <laughs> so, so I, I I grew up with that that strong, uh, democratic, independent <clears throat> uh, ethos uh, in the church. And although I I left the Methodist Church when I was about twenty, not for theological grounds. I didn't leave because it was anything about Arminianism or Calvinism. In fact, I wasn't a Calvinist at the time. I left the Methodist Church because I saw. Uh, a stubborn tendency that uh, the hierarchical bishops or district superintendents would always assign evangelicals way out in the country. And uh, so I I just didn't think that would work for a lifetime of ministry and thought of myself as an independent until I was in seminary. And when I was in seminary, I had the privilege of studying with a really fine, um, undervalued, underappreciated New Testament scholar named Dr. George Knight, who was writing on the pastoral epistles at the time. And uh, Dr. Knight actually published the um, commentary on, on First and Second Timothy in the New International Greek New Testament series. At the time, he worked through the Galley manuscripts with us, and then Dr. Knight taught us uh, church government. <clears throat> and to me, that was that was news. So, so I would just say to your listeners, to all our friends, that the early on the the biggest choice a person will make in terms of ecclesiology is whether they will seek to find a government that is uh, in biblical concepts or in extra-biblical concepts. And uh, for me, uh, I, I came to a, a hearty embrace of Presbyterianism. Of course, it's, it's derived from a biblical term. It's The New Testament is replete uh, with the term presbyter, which it took over from the Old Testament. Uh, but I think there's an early, an early choice in our theological formulation that we make, <clears throat> and it should be a conscious one, uh, that we choose either to have Biblical categories shape our polity, or else we uh, rely on corporate concepts or even traditional concepts, Uh, and and there there are many choices. Um, And for me, I think the reason I guess I guess what I what I appreciate uh, about Presbyterianism as I look at it is it's it's a it's a a via media. It's it's a middle road between. Uh, and I and I state it this way consciously. It's a middle road between hierarchicalism and lowerarchicalism. Often, in in policy terms, the choices are between monarchy as opposed to democracy. Uh, either of those, I think, are prone to human abuse. And so, Presbyterianism offers a blended form of government, uh, a, a middle form uh, that has both strengths and weaknesses. Uh, but that's that's sort of how, how I got to that point, and uh, my life has been enriched by study of historic polities, um, and, and I think sometimes those are always uh, worth studying and often superior to things we have today.
2: You've already entered into this discussion a little bit, but maybe just give us a brief overview of, of how you would define Presbyterianism, and if you could maybe set out some of the core tenets that you would say, th- this makes Presbyterianism uh, distinctive from other traditions?
1: Yeah, t- two uh, two things I'd recommend. One is that there was a short little book written uh, a little over 100 years ago by an English Presbyterian named Thomas Witherow. If you've never heard of him, you're not alone, That although it's been republished. But Thomas Witherow was an English Presbyterian who wrote a small book entitled The Apostolic Church, which is it? It was published in 1906, and nobody ever heard him because there's probably about five English Presbyterians. You just couldn't find these this, this species. It was, it was an endangered species. <clears throat> and Witherow lays out six defining principles of the New Testament. And then uh, when I do officer training, I put these in columns. I said, okay, which polity meets these? And that was, that was his idea, so it wasn't mine. Uh, but the first is that, that, for example, Christ is the head and king of the church alone. Christ alone is the head and king of church. Sounds basic, sounds uh, easy. That sounds non-controversial. Uh, but there are some ecclesiastical polities that make the Bishop of Rome or the Archbishop of Canterbury the head uh, of the church. So we believe the spiritual headship of Christ. Uh, and then he makes a, a, a distinction that uh, I think carries a lot of weight, and and that is that in the New, New Testament, he offers the office is a of presbyter uh, and uh, overseer or bishop are the same, two different words for the same concept. That makes all the difference in the world. That eliminates a hierarchical uh, structure. Uh, And then Witherow also points out that the office holders of the church uh, are elected or confirmed. There's some debate over the the, uh, exegesis of the term in Acts 14, Uh, but they're confirmed at least by a congregation who gives consent Part of the genius, I think, of Presbyterianism, and this is what we, we would share this with uh, our Baptist friends, part of the genius is no outside agency may impose an officer on the church against her will. Uh, in the hierarchical denominations, there are always uh, some kind of <clears throat> layer, some kind of triangular structure that has a higher officer who will and may uh, legitimately impose a pastor or a bishop or, or what have you. Uh, in Presbyterianism, uh, even the presbytery doesn't have the authority to do that, nor does the General Assembly. Um, so you have a, you have this blended form of government where there's there's a good balance between the proper input of the congregation, uh, but also where there is authority uh, given to the office. So that's that's a thumbnail uh, sketch of Presbyterianism. But but I would commend to all of your audience uh, the book. Thankfully, has been republished. It's inexpensive. Thomas Witherow, the Apostolic Church, which is it? So along these
0: polity lines and how officers are structured, I think, um, I you know, I grew up a Baptist and I've got a lot of friends who were Presbyterian. I had no idea what in the world was going on with Presbyterianism. And I think one of the, the things that confused me the most was, I guess, just the distinction between teaching and ruling elder. What does that mean? And then how the there is some sort of external structure with those officers uh, in grouping. So can you explain to me, like, the distinction between those two offices, if they're, like, I guess if it's just a name only or function, and then how is it that there are regional groups and how that works together? You said there's no external, you know, imposing. So why is it that there's a group? Those sort
1: of things. Well, let me start with that second part. The presbytery's function is is typically summarized in in three areas. Uh, one is the Presbytery functions as a as a credentialing agency. That is, it, it reassures the church and the region that the pastor is properly trained, that he's godly, that he meets biblical qualifications, that he's not, you know, running a <clears throat> massage parlor on the side or something like that. I'm sorry, that just came to me. But, you know, it, it, it assures the church that there are more eyes on this than just the individual who's becoming your pastor and just the congregation. Uh, I think that's actually needed more than ever, uh, even though we are, we're awash with social media, uh, notwithstanding, uh, a person could have all kinds of skeletons in their closet, ethical or theological and so the one of the presbytery's chief functions one of its its essentials irreducible minimums if you will uh is to be able to examine a minister and make sure that he is uh, that he checks all the boxes so credentialing is is one function uh, secondly discipline in in sharing with that in mutual accountability which is badly needed in our day and then thirdly the regional presbyteries are useful for cooperative ministry greater than say, a small or medium local, local church can carry out uh, on its own. Uh, so we meet together, and when a pastor is called in Presbyterian polity, he has a joint call. He's called by two agencies. He's called by the congregation, uh, which in many ways looks a- almost identical to a Baptist call. The congregation has its, its due input and votes, uh, but then there is also a simultaneous call and confirmation from Presbytery. But both of those are needed. And on the back end, when we uh, accept another call or, or, or resign or something, both of those calling agencies must agree. Uh, the usefulness uh, of that is to have accountability. And it's something that most of us as centers really resist uh, and don't like. I, I think independency, for example, is, is, is uber attractive to Americans. There's some cultures where, where there's not. <clears throat> the distinction between te- teaching and a ruling elder is not uh, not really a biblical distinction. Uh, that is, it's not in, in biblical terminology, uh, but it is in terms of function. Uh, ruling elders are those who meet the same uh, qualifications as a teaching elder, but spend most of their livelihood in some kind of other work. A teaching elder is set apart to preach and teach and pray and disciple uh, and uh, build up the church. So uh, some some people still in our communities debate, whether it's a three-office view or a two-office view, uh, I think common sense admits that the pastoral office is different uh, from a very fine, godly, ruling elder who's either retired or who works in a bank. Uh, so there were both of those, and that was one of the rediscoveries of the Reformation. Uh, Calvin said there were four offices of the church. He included teachers. I think there was maybe a little bias of his own personal experience there, but uh, because you don't find that everywhere. Uh, but there are, certainly were always pastors and ruling elders, or governors, as they're called sometimes, or seniors in the French polity, uh, and then there were deacons. So
2: it's, it sounds like the, the role, when it comes to appointing officers to a particular congregation, the role of the, the presbytery... Sort of sounds like in Baptist life, what the role of an association would be. But uh, is the difference there that the the decision of the presbytery is binding on on the actual appointment to the congregation? Whereas, in an, if an association is is reviewing a particular candidate for a congregation, it's still ultimately up solely to the congregation. So, in in the Presbyterian model, the the candidate has to check both boxes, right? The congregation yeah. and the presbytery. Is that correct? Yeah.
1: Right, no, that's a uh, that's a good summary, much much more succinct than mine. Thanks. Yeah, yeah there's there's an authority that the presbytery has, uh, and it's a conjoint calling. Okay. And if yep. both boxes are not checked, that calling should not uh, move ahead and proceed. Okay.
0: So, in theory, could the presbytery check all the boxes and say yes, this candidate is good? But the local church could say, actually, we don't want him, and they can still reject him. It's just a matter Absolutely. of. So it's Absolutely. it's just the reverse, where they can't say, we want this guy, but the Presbytery says no, and then they still get him.
1: Right. The Presbytery cannot impose a, a candidate. It can veto. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: That's Got helpful. It.
2: Maybe we can pivot to a historical question. Can you situate uh, Presbyterianism as we understand it today— uh, in history. So how did it come to be? We, we know it's it's reformational, but um, the Presbyterian model, can you give us the years that that really begins to take hold uh, in the Reformation?
1: Well, I, I try to date it, and, and you would want me to, I try to date it to the first century, of course. <clears throat> the Didache has some a, a few ecclesiological principles. Uh, Clement of Rome wrote an epistle in 95 AD that actually refers to uh, bishops and deacons, which, of course, the Apostle Paul does at the beginning in his salutation to the letter to Philippi. Uh, so they, uh, early, the early church, uh, I think, had a, a purer uh, understanding of government that became corrupted over the time, necessitating the return to, to church government uh, at the time of the Reformation. So you, you're, you're right, though, that historically, you won't find uh, much of a Reformation policy. There are a couple of precursors, about 100 years uh, before Calvin, uh, Huss, I think, was a leader. I did a paper a couple of years ago back. I, I'll have to refresh my my memory sometime, but I think Huss was was a precursor to Calvin's ecclesiology about 100 years. Of course, it didn't end up too well for him. Uh, but then at the Reformation, in, in certain city-states and certain cultures, the Reformation polities became free. Uh, a couple of other earlier precursors that are not as well known as Calvin, John uh and and uh, Butzer, Martin Butzer in Strasbourg began to pioneer the uh, what we would call Reformation Presbyterianism. And yet it was in Geneva. <clears throat> it was in Geneva that Calvin uh, began to publish that. When Calvin uh, came to Geneva originally in, in 1536, uh, he was uh, enjoined. Uh, to come and was there for two years and then was shown the door. He was exiled to Strasbourg. While he was in Strasbourg, he was probably mentored by the likes of Martin Busser and, and Echolampadius and others uh, in that time. And when he came back, when he was invited back to Geneva, uh, Calvin made a, a couple of, of prerequisites. He said, I'm not going to come back uh, and just be abused again. Uh, one of his demands uh, was that he be allowed to write Uh, the ecclesiastical discipline or the the church government in Geneva. And that was something he thought that was absolutely essential for the freedom of the church. And and it was essential for the church to be free, to carry out its own discipline, to have its own government, have its own officers apart from the secular government. And that was a Reformation breakthrough. Uh, The first draft of that was in in 1541 uh, when he came back. And then his, his lieutenant, Theodore Beza, uh, published in 1559, the Ecclesiastical Ordinances, which is a lasting contribution uh, to Reformed uh, polity. Also, at the same time, there's there's the rise of the Scottish Book of Discipline, uh, and the Scots added a lot of refinement. <clears throat> of course, they got a, a good bit of that when Knox and others uh, were refugees in Geneva. So the, really from the 1540s to the 1570s, there were a spate of, of pamphlets, and, and I would say, by the way, not only on church government, but uh, on civil government. So it was a a flourishing period in the church uh, in a couple of safe zones, Geneva, Strasbourg, uh, Barron, and a few other places, where the Reformed faith, we say, could work out its essential theological core to the practical level. Uh, And that's what ecclesiastical polity is. It's a practical incarnation uh, of, of the principles of theology. I think that's one of the strengths of, of Reformed Presbyterianism is we try to uh, uh, organically see our theology work itself out in politics.
0: So when I think of Presbyterianism, there's some things that are attractive to me. Um, I'm attracted to the order. Um, I'm attracted to the liturgy. I'm attracted to a lot of those things. But what what makes Presbyterianism especially beautiful to you? What are the things that you say, man, I just love being a Presbyterian because of this?
1: You know, that's a hard question. And um, I, I knew you were going to ask that, and I've got, I've got an unusual answer. Uh, nothing makes Presbyterian beautiful to me. <laughs> it, it, we have a sort of aesthetic fetish going on these days. Everybody wants to be the beautiful Orthodox and all that, which is a nice idea. Uh, but I, I think that's probably a, a, a category that just doesn't fit on any polity. It, you might you might well contend that uh, sacraments and liturgy are beautiful but as far as polity uh, it's not a beautiful thing I'm not sure it's designed to be a beautiful thing the best I can come is in first Corinthians uh, 14 let all things be done decently and in order so Presbyterians should be we should be more modest and humble so I, I guess rather than saying there's a beauty to our polity which would be an a plus we're, we're C plus b minus two. <laughs> And uh, we'll just take simple decency and, and orderliness. Uh, but there is a lot. I, I guess Presbyterian government probably is one of the more mature outworkings of ecclesiology. Uh, what what I'm interested to see in the next 20, 30 years, and I think we're seeing some of this, is how uh, Presbyterian polity spreads in emerging churches. <clears throat> and I believe it is. And uh, I would like to see young churches in Africa and in uh, in Asia uh, and, in, and in in Pakistan and different places, I would like to see the return to a simple presbyterial order, whatever you call it. It can be a small P. Um, but one of the one of the, the lost resources that I'll come into your audience, in addition to Thomas Witherow, is the just divinum, uh, the Presbyterian polity of the Westminster Assembly of divines, as you know, uh, the Parliament already always kept the Westminster Assembly a little bit under their thumb. And the parliament uh, never approved the Westminster Confession chapters on church discipline or on church government <clears throat> because that was a threat to a monarchical system. Um, and so the divines had to write secretly and publish later their just venom. Now, if you've gone on Amazon, you can find a shorter abridged uh, version of their just venom that we're actually encouraging uh, a number of emerging churches in other continents to translate uh, into their language. So I guess, I guess that's a question you didn't ask, but if you ask me the simplest polity, that's where I would refer you. And there, and there were healthy debates between, between your family and my family, even in the 1650s, between independents mm-hmm. and Presbyterians. There, there were healthy debates, and of course you would expect the Westminster divines to fall down on the Presbyterian side of, of that, but, but it's, it's certainly a a book and a, and a, a, a monograph to interact with.
2: Are there any areas, and maybe to narrow the scope here, just a little bit of American Presbyterian life today that you think are most susceptible to critique, or maybe areas that you think are misunderstood or that you get, uh, the most questions about?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm a bigger fan of, I'm a bigger fan of, um, 16th and 17th century European Presbyterianism than I am of 18th through 21st century American Presbyterianism I think there are some differences some 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 improvements uh, of course uh, our, our view of the civil magistrate I think is different and I think it's improved uh, over over Calvins <clears throat> uh, but I think in American Presbyterianism we've we've created two things first of all if you if you if you summarize, the uh, work of just say the belgic confession the scottish book of discipline uh, the 1619 church order of dort the Synod of dort had a church order we would we would refer to those as then pamphlets and now today uh your audience may not see this but this this is our, our, our book of church order it's pretty thick so we have taken a structural polity principles and in our development of there, and of course that book represents about 250 years of American Presbyterian development, uh, we have almost created a monster. We, we've created a very thick uh, book uh, with with a lot of rules, uh, many of which are very helpful, most of which are very helpful. <clears throat> but uh, sometimes you can get tangled up in those. So that's one downside, I think, of mature Presbyterianism is uh, we we take... Uh, the tax code, if you will, and make it too big. The second goes along with that. Uh, I am a, I'm a big fan of small government Presbyterianism. And most American Presbyterian denominations cannot resist the temptation to build large bureaucracies. Bureaucracies and denominational headquarters and those kind of things uh, are, are really not the same as core ecclesiological principles. And uh, it's it's better if we keep those separate. Uh, if you ask me what we bring to the table, uh, we do bring some orderliness, but we bring with us, I would say good Presbyterianism brings inefficiency. And Americans don't like inefficiency. Corporate uh, uh, business models don't like inefficiency. Uh, but it's, it's better, I think we argue, to go slowly together than to go rapidly together into heresy. So that's why we have <clears throat> so many layers of government, so many structures. Uh, those are designed to provide protection uh, for the common common church. And I think in a day in, when we see so many scandals, I mean, really just in the last five to 10 years, uh, all of the parachurch ministries that that have made the headlines, all of the things that give us as evangelicals a bad name uh, could have probably been corrected with some some vital presbyterial accountability uh, but there is in, within us as, as human beings as sinners there is that unquenchable aspiration to be king to be a ruler overall that goes back to the Garden of Eden of course and uh, we we have, have have a very difficult time uh, admitting uh, that we need to be submissive let, let me can I read you something can I read you a short sentence? this Absolutely. is from early sure an early church father, which I dug up in a a book that I edited 30 years ago and had forgotten about. But it it was so wonderful to to reread it. Uh, And this is is from Clement of Rome, 95 AD, uh, who would not be very popular with most independent churches in America. In paragraph 57, he says, You, therefore, who laid the foundation of the revolt, must submit to the presbyters and accept discipline leading to repentance, bending the knees of your heart. Learn how to subordinate yourselves, laying aside the arrogant and proud stubbornness of your tongue. For it is better, this is his concluding sentence, it is better for you to be found small, but included in the flock of Christ, than to have a preeminent reputation, yet be excluded from its hope. There's there's, there's great wisdom there, and, and, and many of our celebrity pastors and many of our organizations that we've created in our American ethos uh, go diametrically opposed to that. But it would be better uh, for us to learn, for we all do have to submit. As 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, we all submit. Every man is submitted to Christ. A woman to man, Christ to God, uh, in the functional sense, of course.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned the book of church order at the beginning of that. And I think, I mean, for our Baptist listeners, they may not be familiar with what a book of church order is how binding is it uh, what is it what does it tell you so could you give me a little bit of a
1: i guess crash course on what that is sure we we have three layers of authority in in presbyterianism the first and unrivaled authority is scripture and scripture alone in our ordination vows there's so, there's some key verbs that differentiate the hierarchy of authorities for how we how we make our decisions and the first and unamendable is scripture which in our denomination we uh, say is inerrant. So the PCA has used the term inerrant for over 50 or almost 50 years. So we um, <clears throat> believe uh, in the inerrancy of scriptures. Scripture is our uh, unparalleled, our only infallible rule of faith and practice. Second, our second ordination vow asks us if we sincerely receive and adopt the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms uh, as containing the system of doctrine. So there's there's a subtle um, uh, subtle uh, difference there in nuancing. Uh, we, we believe the Scriptures. That's that's unamendable in our ultimate authority. We receive and adopt the confessions, uh, the Westminster Confession, larger and shorter catechisms, are wonderful doctrinal statements. You you, you men would, would probably love those. By your very name, you agree with about ninety nine percent of the Westminster. Uh, standards. But the confession never trumps scripture, but they are guides, they're summaries. And then the tertiary level, the third is that we um, we uh, adopt in general sense in biblical polity, the book of church order, which is our constitution. So we have a, an infallible authority over a proven 380 year confession of faith. And then our tertiary standard is the book of church order. And if you reverse those, you create all kind of monsters. But we need to always keep that clear. I wonder if
2: we could, for a moment, zero in on the second level there of oh, the confession. And just this is maybe I think it would be interesting just to hear you uh, as someone who has sat in and participated in a lot of these interviews, I would think. When you ask the question about uh, how someone subscribes to the the Westminster Confession, if they do have exceptions on um you know this wording, or maybe this minor doctrine, or whatever. How does that play out? Is it um, do they? Is it just a back and forth conversation? Do they put something in writing, and then it's reviewed by the presbytery? What does that look like?
1: Yeah uh, the the presbytery, um, at least in our denomination, receives in writing any exceptions. That is, we want the candidate's words. We want him to be able to be heard for himself, to be honestly represented, uh, and then the presbytery judges. And the presbytery makes a judgment. It's a corporate body. If the exception is one of minor nuance, we call it scruples uh, of wording or phrasing uh, of a minor issue, uh, then the presbytery says that's that's not to be uh, preventing him from coming into our presbytery. Uh, if it's something major, then the presbytery, in fairness, hears that, examines it, and uh, tries to make an ascertainment as to whether or not that is. Uh, striking at the vitals of our doctrine, and some things do. Uh, I will tell you that, America here again, American Presbyterianism has had an ongoing debate about the meaning of subscription to confession since 1729. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not sure we've made much progress either. I think we go back and forth, <laughs> and, and we spin our tires, <clears throat> and I'm not sure that there's that much uh, progress in clarity uh and, and the reason is we we've tried to again find that balance between being open to whomever God by his holy spirit has given gifts to to serve among us uh while at the same time being somewhat restrictive the european denominations uh have have a little bit of a clearer basis on their confessionalism in my opinion now they're also typically in america they're re, they're they're small and kind of forgotten so there's a tendency among Americans, to dismiss something that might be good simply because it's small, uh, and it's nothing, for example, like the Southern Baptist Convention, um, which which is massive. But it's important that our churches have some semblance of unity, and a confession is designed to be a public instrument, not not decided in in secret meetings. That was one of the one of the damning parts of Pharisaism and you men know this, but one of the damning parts of Phariseeism is not what they codified, but their, their implicit statements that they would use for rejection. A confession is a public document that keeps us from uh, implicit secret meetings and and, and divergent practices. Uh, But it also is designed to give unity. It's designed to promote unity. to have the churches agree uh, on the main things. One of the things I love about the Westminster standards and I'm sure, uh, you men feel the same about the London 1689 <clears throat> is is that they, they didn't try to answer every question. There's plenty of Christian liberty within confessional bounds uh, in these great historic Protestant confessions. Uh, and, and the the authors of these, I think, were wise enough uh, not to lay down a, a dogma for everything that uh, that is imaginable, but to try to state the basis of Christian unity. That's that's what we hope and pray people will uh, use as a benefit of a confession.
2: Do you find that there are maybe a, a handful, or maybe it's just one or two? I don't know um, exceptions that come up again and again that are that are the common ones that that more men take rather than than others.
1: Yeah, and, and that's a, an area of, of caution, I think, too, because if you if you claim to be principially a confessional church, but then grant confessions. Uh, practically all, uh, almost all the time, then at some point in time the balance tips. You have to wonder in what sense we're holding our confession. Uh, typically, there are four or five. Uh, the West, the original Westminster, of course, called the Pope the Antichrist. Uh, our PCA version wisely edited that. The American version did uh, for a while. They've forgotten left the footnote in though that referred to the 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 the, the man of lawlessness in the synagogue of Satan. I think we've cleaned that up. Uh, That's not that that burning of an issue. Uh, There are references in our confession to singing of psalms, and some people think that means exclusive psalmody. I'm not sure that's what the confessional authors intended because many of those who were present at the Westminster Assembly participated uh, in churches that sang hymns uh, in the Anglican tradition. Uh, so that can be a, a minor ex- exception. Uh, the Sabbath, uh, uh, trying to prohibit organized recreation, uh, often we'll have a candidate say, well, if I want to go to the park and throw the Frisbee to my kid, is that okay? And we go, of course it is. Come on, of course it is. Go take a walk. Please, get out of your house. Um, <clears throat> but in terms of, of organized athletics, our Sabbath uh, would would caution against that. Sometimes that is taken uh, as an exception. Uh, there's, there's an exception often taken to a question, I think it's 108 in the larger catechism that talks about the civil magistrate uh, still having some Anglican tenting based on the Westminster Assembly, uh, allow the civil magistrate a little bit more authority in the calling and convening of, of synods and in seeking to have pure worship and to uh, rid our churches of blasphemy most Americans would be comfortable with those, are the main ones, and, and I guess another one is, is on the cessation of uh spiritual gifts. <clears throat> uh, in chapter one, the confession uh ties that uh to revelation, uh, but there's some who have a charismatic background uh, who have difficulty with that.
0: That's good. Now, there's I got a lot of questions I'd love to ask, but one thing I'd like I'd love for you to walk me through and give a nice synopsis or summary of is just what Presbyterian or I guess Reformed thinkers in general, because I think Baptists, I mean at least I would, uh, view the sacraments as a means of grace. Walk me through what does it mean that uh, the word preached is a means of grace, that uh, the supper and baptism are means of grace? Like How does that play into our public worship and, and the life of the church?
1: yeah and and one of your questions was was to me was was what are the what do we get most questions about? I actually don't get that many questions about polity. Most people who join our church uh, are coming from an independent church or from a hierarchical church and they really like uh, the blended government uh, we have that's not just controlled by one powerful figure, for example. If you've been at a church that has had some kind of excess or abuse, you appreciate that. Most of our comments are on the sacraments. So, so what, are the, what do we mean by the ordinary means of grace? There are three ordinary means of grace, the word, prayer, and the sacraments. And what we mean by that is those are the designed channels and methods through which God has said the church will flourish and grow. Uh, I'm preaching through the book of Acts right now, for example, and my next sermon will be on God's method of missions from Acts chapter 11. Uh, we believe that God has always said uh, go and spread the gospel through the preaching of the word, through the discipling of the nations, through gathering people into biblical churches governed by qualified elders. <clears throat> and so those means of grace are God's methods. Uh, when we talk about the ordinary means of grace in most, uh, at least conservative PCA circles, we are distancing ourselves from an early 19th century American revivalistic uh, approach. Uh, that that has with it complete the the altar calls and the enthusiasm and emotional appeals, and the emphasis on uh, on on the individual. So uh, we're we're always trying to be more about God than about me. I know that sounds pious and it that, that, that could even be perceived as a low blow. I don't mean it that way, but we we really do want to exalt God and not ourselves. And so the the use of the ordinary means of grace is a way to do that.
2: Well, Dr. Hall, this has been tremendously uh, insightful. So at first, I just want to say thank you for your time. But as a a final question, um, if someone wants to learn more about uh, Presbyterianism, I wonder if you could just give us a few suggestions on places to go, maybe an entryway, so a basic introduction to um, Presbyterian thought, but then maybe a more advanced uh, theologian that that we could be directed to to learn more about uh, Presbyterian theology, ecclesiology, things of that nature.
1: Yeah, I would start with Thomas Witherow, The Apostolic Church, which is it, you can pick it up on Amazon and have it to your house in two or three weeks now. It used to be tomorrow uh, <clears throat> with the supply chain. Uh, Witherow is a great book. It's, it's accessible. Um, and, then, and then I would say look, look at one of the versions of Just a Venom to go back and get a historic polity. Guy Waters, who teaches at RTS Jackson, uh, has a book entitled "Who I think it's Who Runs the Church." I forget the exact title, but Guy Waters um, uh, has, a, has a fine uh, beginning book on that. Then there there's scads of pamphlets uh, on Presbyterianism. I have a big thick book on paradigms and polity that I wouldn't necessarily recommend because it's six hundred and some odd pages, but seminarians use it, and it has it's a sampler um, of of all the different polities. So that's that's from from short to long. Uh, and I would say, say, look at those.
2: I said that was my final question, but sorry. So, um, what? Who is your personal favorite Presbyterian theologian?
1: Well, it's it's very politically incorrect to say that. Uh, I really do like two Southern Presbyterians. Uh, they were both slaveholders, and shame on them for that. And we don't, we don't, we don't have slaves. Um, but Robert Louis Dabney was was a, a brilliant philosophically inclined Southern Presbyterian theologian and his compatriot was James Henley Thornwell. Thornwell is more associated with ecclesiology. And Thornwell uh, wrote some wonderful things on the spiritual mission of the church. There are many others that have done that uh, along with him. But the, the the concept of the spiritual mission of the church is, I think, absolutely vital for the church today, to, to, to remind us that we don't get we don't get caught up in all the partisan battles of the day. We're not we're not community organizers. We're not political active groups. Uh, we are to preach the gospel, to open the scriptures, and the church has a limited definition and charter. If we would spend more time carrying out the things that Christ has assigned to the church to do, instead of inventing a lot of other programs and and different agencies. Uh, I think the church would be much better off. That's one of the things that that does attract me uh, to biblical Presbyterianism is the the concept of the spiritual mission of the church.
0: Now, for me, my last question, we we haven't talked about the baptism debate whatsoever, and I I don't want to get into 45 minutes of that. But for those, (laughs) yeah, maybe I do. Uh, For those, I mean, I would say probably 60 to 70% of our listeners are Baptists, uh, and for me, growing up, I not being exposed to Presbyterianism, even though my uncle is a Presbyterian. Um, h- how it is that I don't know anything about Presbyterianism? Probably my mom doesn't doesn't like it. Whatever. Um, I didn't understand infant baptism, why they did it, and when one of my friends who was a PCA minister kind of explained it to me, I was like, "Holy." why did no one explain to me like the rationale? What are your favorite resources for those who want to understand like legitimately, it's not just Roman Catholic practice. They have a legitimate right. theological instruction for why they're doing it. What are the best resources on that? What do, do you know the
1: old book, William the Baptist? Yes, I do. It's, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, set of dialogues, almost Socratic, di- platonic dialogues between a mid 19th century Presbyterian, and William, who's the Baptist, and it's it's colorful and it's been reprinted. It's kind of a fun uh, book. I, can, can I answer that, though, instead of with a bibliographical reference, with a biographical reference? Uh, as I told you, I, I was brought up in the Methodist Church. <clears throat> I was a, up to my eyeballs in the charismatic movement in the mid-'70s, uh, a dispensationalist, non-denominational, er, everything that, that you don't think of for Presbyterianism. And uh, when I was in seminary, uh, my second year, I had a wonderful professor, Dr. John Sanderson, who taught covenant theology. I had never heard that before. Maybe like you. <clears throat> I had never heard uh, a theology approach from the unified uh, a vision of, of the covenant. And it was at that time that in my mind, uh, I had to finally r- realize that the Bible teaches the doctrine of election and predestination. I fought against that for a long time. I fought against all of the five points of Calvinism. I obviously lost <laughs> and, and had to run up the white flag uh, on each of those. But I had two doctrinal matters that kept me from being ordained in the in the PCA or one of its precursor denominations, the RPCES in 1980. So I went into the liberal Southern Presbyterian Church. I was ordained as, as a Southern Presbyterian in the mainline denomination because of two things. I, I could not accept limited atonement, um, and I could not accept infant baptism. And so I'm studying for my ordination exams, and finally, <clears throat> I, I get the atonement sort of straightened out, and I finally get that, but I want I to I just tell you that, that infant baptism was the last bowling pin to fall uh, in, in my theological alley, and uh, it, I fought against it, and the only reason it clicked, and I don't think I'm that unusual, the only reason it clicked was there was a sea change in my Theological formulation when I became a covenant theologian and when I saw how God had worked repeatedly throughout history in basically the same ways <clears throat> and tying together and being able to see that the Abrahamic covenant was God's one-time covenant of grace to us and that, that circumcision was the precursor of baptism uh, relieved uh, all of that that uh, construct that, that I had created Primarily, I say, and this is just again, this is my personal experience, primarily because I was an American, because, because I was an individualist. and I, I, I think that I, I grew up thinking that baptism was primarily an individualistic public testimony. Here I stand with God, and, and that's, that's I have many friends like you like you and others who, who believe that and, and hold that dearly some in our church. <clears throat> and and I, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but the emphasis appeared to me over time to be more on what I'm doing and what I'm saying. And there's a, a wonderful proper place for public testimony, but I'm not sure it's the same thing as the sacrament of baptism. And so I come back to that, that motto I used earlier in, in our conversation. Baptism is more about God and what he does, his washing of our sin, not about me. And it's not a report or an update on my current status, uh, but it's about what God does. Now, the weakness of that position, and I'll go in and anticipate your next question, what happens at baptism? I don't know. I, I have to be honest with you. <clears throat> if I knew, I would tell you. I'm not hiding something, but I, we simply can't quantify uh, the the spiritual inputs of the sacraments. The same is true for the Lord's Supper. Uh, we do believe that those are taught. We believe God says do those. We believe there's reason for that, so will you do that, in obedience, but we look to Him, and so our sacraments are, are, are more about what God does. I'm not answering your question about a good book to no. read, but no, that's helpful. I mean, a lot of fun. There are a lot I of in it.
0: I mean, I don't know. Of people who are listening, I don't know how much they know about me. I almost became a Presbyterian for a period of time, and I still hold to the fact that baptism is primarily about what God does, it's not my pledge of allegiance. So, in a lot of ways, I feel like I am I have a very reformed view of baptism, I just think. That baptism goes to believers only and that's really the only distinction that i
1: make <laughs> well i i may like i say it's always been one of my goals to be a baptist so maybe i'll end up with you anyway.
0: <laughs> that's right that's so it. we'll swap stories and books yeah back
1: when i was a hippie i had long hair they wouldn't let me be a baptist and now that i'm a calvinist they won't let me be a baptist but... <laughs> well we will welcome you with
0: open arms that's uh, Calvin. Right. Uh, that's right. So I, I really enjoyed the conversation, so thanks, uh, Dr. Right. Hall, for doing this with us. This has Appreciate been fun. It. Appreciate what you're yeah, and, and as a reminder, I do really, it, Reformation Worship Conference, hopefully it comes back if it's been gone for two years, because uh, I want to go. We have um, we
1: have plans for a great one next year. I, I, it, there's still a lot of complicating uh, factors like getting our, our, our speakers, but thank you for your, yeah. your kind words, and thank you Uh, brothers, uh, for having me on. Uh, Let's go, Jordan.
0: (laughs) That's right. Well, thanks for everybody for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon.
2: When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes, like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind.